a year plus now, about a year actually, and that's kind of our MO as a church community. We've preached through the book of Romans, of John, Philippians, but I think that some books kind of feel really long. We're going to be in Matthew for another year and a half. We're going to take a few breaks uh, during Christmas and New Year's, kind of re- recasting vision for our church. But I wanted to kind of put out, before we um, jump into our sermon, a little bit of my theology and philosophy for why we walk through books of the Bible like that. So on the next slide, um, why do we preach through books of the Bible? Great question you're asking. Um, first, they are meant to be taught and read that way. You know, when we look at the books of the Bible, they're meant to be read from one cover to another. They have themes. There's th- uh, things that the author is trying to develop in terms of their messaging, and it's a narrative. So, so to read it in sections would be like, hey, I really want to explore the world of Harry Potter, you know, so I'm going to pick up Deathly Hallows, turn to page 123 and read an excerpt and try to understand and then go back to Sorcerer's Stone and read like a chapter from there. And so I, you know, I think any, when you think about authors in general, you, you can't really understand their world, uh, their themes, their message without reading a, their book front to back. And so I think um, that's one of the biggest ways, uh, reasons why we preach that way. Um, secondly, it gives us a balanced perspective on his word. It's like we don't ever, I don't ever want to preach a sermon on hell. Like I'm not just not going to choose that as a topic. But last week we talked about hell because we're walking through the passage of scripture. And it kind of forces us, sometimes we need to be forced, to talk about things that maybe aren't priorities for us. Maybe we're uncomfortable with this topic. But Jesus is speaking on it. And it allows us to speak on things in proportion to what he's thinking and how he wants uh, what, what is important to him versus like if I just preached on dating all day or, or all of these really kind of exciting topics. But we, we do talk about those things, but I wonder what is the balance perspective from his word um, on these topics? What are his priorities? And we get that as we read through the Bible. Also, it gives us tools to read and understand scripture. So hopefully as I teach, you know, you're walking through the passage with me, as opposed to a topical sermon where maybe I take a verse from here, another verse from there, another verse from here. I might be able to uh, speak about it correctly and exegete it well, but it's going to be very difficult for you to track with me how I am walking through the Word of God. So hopefully as we work through the book of Matthew, there's this sense that, hey, I, I understand where he's getting these points from because I'm walking through this text with him. I understand why he's interpreting it this way because we've been in Matthew for a year. And we also want to give you these tools in small groups. So when you join our young adult college or family small group, a lot of them, we just kind of roll up our sleeves and we talk about the text, the passage that we're going to preach about on Sunday. And so as we do that as a community, I hope that you're able to take those same tools and do it at home. And it's really kind of like just having the ingredients on the table learning how to use them, learning how to use a knife and silverware, what else is with cooking, and a pan and an oven, you know, and, and trying to take scripture kind of in this raw way and learn to interpret it and apply it into our lives, as opposed to having all these intermediate means, you know, like a, like a, a devotional with a passage stuck on top of it. Um, it's kind of baked for you, and it's hard to understand, how do I get there 
just with the scripture itself. So our small groups are even more broken down. And sometimes it can be frustrating. Sometimes we leave and we're like, I'm not sure if I got anything from that. But as we grow in a, as a community, which I've seen us do over this last year, um, we're, we're able to pick up tools. And we're able to approach the Bible on our own through doing it as a community. And that's one of the most important things our church can equip you in uh, as you attend here for however long. Also, you'll remember the passages and the sermons as you reread books of the Bible. And so I've listened to thousands of sermons. I'm not against topical sermons. We're going to do that um, in seasons at our church. I don't think it's, like, wrong to do it. But I've listened to thousands of sermons, and over the years, unless the sermon is, like, just given by the most amazing preacher, I'm weeping, you know, or they give that really great story. I probably don't remember the sermon, but that story was phenomenal, and I was laughing. Um, When I look at these thousands of sermons, the ones that, the majority of the ones that I really remember are because a pastor faithfully preached through a book of the Bible, whether it's, I I was uh, taught through Ephesians um, by Pastor uh, Peter of Berean. I was taught through Romans by Elijah of Oikos. And he just sat, they just sat with us. And week after week, they just faithfully explained scripture. And I would challenge you, if you've been here for a few years and you walk through Philippians or Romans, to go back and just reread it. And, and hear, you know, my really creepy voice in your head explaining these passages to you. And there's something beautiful about us having the Bible for the rest of our lives us going into our 40s or 50s or 60s and re-reading Matthew and hearing again not only the words of the Lord, but your discussion in your small group, an insight that your brother or sister brought to you on a Thursday night or um, a sermon point that I preached. And so we're really big on that. And lastly, uh, we have all our, I forgot about this last point I put down. We have all our sermons on podcasts. So I think if you're, if you're thinking, man, what, what other books of the Bible can I explore kind of Monday through Friday? We have uh, half of John, all of Romans, all of uh, Philippians on podcasts. We'd love for you to re, re, uh, re-listen to those, maybe listen to them for the first time. Uh, Josh Garcia was listening to pretty much every podcast we've ever put out uh, over the last couple months as he's kind of finding ways to deepen his theology. He came from a Catholic background. He didn't have a really strong grasp of those books. So he's just kind of reading it. And as we thought about planning a church, we wanted to set as much foundations for theology and biblical knowledge as we could. And so if you're exploring Christianity or if you're kind of new to it and you want deeper roots, those podcasts kind of walk you back into some of those um, basic tenets of the faith. We do a series where we just walk through the entire book of the Bible speaking about the large narrative of scripture from Genesis to Revelations. Um, Most of the sermons there are really good. So next slide. All right, so we're walking into this passage, um, Matthew chapter 13, and we open with a question per usual. And I I think about walking dead. You know, there's a zombie apocalypse, um, the rule of law, government, you know, kind of all of these social systems have been uh, totally broken down. And then we have these communes or these communities and societies that have sprouted out, like Hilltop or, um, or Negan's like, whole world, right? I am Negan. And they have all of these really, uh, we think about communities in that way. And, what are, and I think about what are the essential elements that every community 
uh, has for it to function. And I'm not talking maybe water or food, but I'm talking about more philosophical necessities. Like when you think about Marxism versus democracy or a republic versus um, like Confucius's view on society, what are things that they, what are elements that they all retained? And so uh, I would love for you to have some discussion about that. And uh, if you get bored, you could go into the details or just talk about the utopia you'd always like to live in or a commune you'd like to start. So those are some alternate um, for people who get bored. Okay, so I'll be back in two minutes. Yeah, I was doing some research on, on communities. How many of you guys know what EPCOT is? Epcot, yeah, Nick. Do you know? Do you know what the acronym stands for? Not off the top of your. Anyone else? I think Brandon should know. No, Brandon, no. So, if you're a hardcore Disney fan, Epcot is the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, and it's what Tomorrowland was envisioned to be by Walt Disney. So he wasn't thinking of another amusement park. He was actually thinking of creating a society. He would have residential areas, uh, industrial areas, commercial. There would be kind of the center where this really large um, building would be erected. And it would house thousands of people as they visited the city. And he had vision for like transportation where the whole city would be built around this hub, kind of like a wheel with spokes on it. And monorails would run the whole city so you wouldn't have like cars polluting the air. And then he had vision for schooling and for innovation and how people can take this city and make it into what every city could become, kind of like this blueprint. And I love that vision. I would have, they, he was taking like 20,000 residents at first. Think about the line it would be to live, basically live in Disneyland. Uh, every c- citizen would have to contribute in different ways um, in, in that commune or uh, utopia. I, it, it really leads up to a horror movie of Mickey killing everyone. But, um, but I wonder, when we think about a community, what are the most important facets or S, um, elements to a community? In the next slide, these are the things that, oh, next slide. These are the things that, um, next slide. <laughs> we don't have a video. We used to. Um, so I think we need a ruler or a king or some type of governing power. So if we think, of, again, across the board in terms of country or communes or cults, you have someone in charge or a group of people in charge. Uh, secondly, we have borders, right? When, when you think about Walt Disney World, you have a specific area around, uh, around the park or around his community that is, that is bordered between um, in this city and not. Or I was in El Paso dropping off my little sister. I was so super sad. But um, anyways, that, that's not the point. But we looked over this vantage point, and we could see the border between El Paso and Mexico. It's very uh, clearly delineated which country you're in, which city you're in. You, you drive into Brea. This is welcome to Brea. So borders. The third part is uh, laws, right? Things that govern shared values and laws where all of us are agreeing to live in this specific way. This is legal. This is uh, good behavior. This is bad behavior. This will kick you out. This will get you incarcerated. Uh, no, incarcerated. And the fourth one, 
my jokes are just me mispronouncing words. That's just, that's how. Anyways, uh, and then the fourth one is citizens. Who, how do you become a citizen? And who is a citizen? And uh, how many citizens do you have? I think when you look at societies, these are the four uh, crucial elements that we have to think through when it comes to a society or a kingdom or a commune or a country. Now, in the next slide, uh, we're at Jesus in parables, but we're going to backtrack a little bit in the next slide and look at, again, the book of Matthew. And I hope that some of you might even commit this to memory. But you look at the structure of Matthew, and it goes from narrative to discourse, back and forth. A narrative is like an episode or a story about how Jesus lived. A discourse is his teaching. And when you look at the book of Matthew unfolding, again, you can't do this unless you walk through the book one uh, chapter at a time. But when you look at the book of Matthew uh, unfolding, you see these really important elements of a kingdom and, and the makeup of it coming through in the book of Matthew. He addresses uh, borders. He addresses kingship. He addresses citizenship. Uh, he addresses the legal system. And the book of Matthew is really announcing this God kingdom, this kingdom of God in which he rules and reigns on earth. Okay, and so in the first a uh, few chapters of Matthew in chapter 1 through 4, we have the announcement of Jesus arriving, the King of Israel, the Messiah, coming and taking rulership of his kingdom. All the prophecies, Matthew has the most prophecies of all the Gospels pointing to this Messiah and Jesus fulfilling that role in Israel, this expected Messiah. And then Chapter 5 through 7 talks about kingdom life. These are the laws, the rules that will govern his kingdom. And he speaks to uh, a variety of issues. And, and he doesn't just speak to it in the negative, which when we think about society and, and the legal system, that's all we can really give people. He speaks to it in the positive as well. I'll talk about that a little bit more. He talks about how his kingdom, uh, the power of the Messiah, his kingdom pushing against darkness, driving out demons, driving out sickness, giving us a picture of what the fullness of his kingdom will look like. And then he talks about um, missionaries, this, this messianic uh, missional life, how the kingdom will expand and push forward. And he gives a discourse on, for his disciples to the first missionary journey that will be continued throughout the centuries. In chapter uh, 11 and 12, we have opposition against the Messiah as the religious establishment opposes him. And then we're on chapter 13, where he talks about the mysteries of the messianic kingdom in parables. He's giving us insight into how his kingdom will, what his kingdom will look like through mostly agricultural references. But he talks about all of these different concepts And when he comes into the scene, not only does he fulfill all these messianic prophecies, he often speaks about his kingdom. He almost announces himself that way. When he steps into a new city, when he talks to a new audience, he says, behold, the kingdom of God is near, right? He's announcing his kingdom as he steps into different areas of uh, Jerusalem and, and Galilee, where he does most of his ministry. And then when he talks about, again, his parables, he says, this is the kingdom of God. So we look at the next slide, and we think about the parables that have already been spoken about the kingdom. Um, When you look at Dave talking about 
the parable of the sowers and how um, the message of God's kingdom, this invitation to be a part of his kingdom goes out and some people don't even hear it. Some people um, are excited, but then they get distracted. Other people are choked out by weeds, by wealth or um, other distractions of this world. But other people receive the seed, their good soil, and they bear a lot of fruit. The other kingdom parable is about weeds and wheat, right? How we're kind of coexisting with people who don't, uh, aren't aligned to kingdom values, don't worship Jesus, and, um, or people who look Christian but actually are not. And then we spent a lot of time talking about Jesus separating the weed and the wheats in, in the last days. And now here's another parable. He told another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it grows, it, bec- it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Uh, in the next slide, we have a, a visual of a mustard seed. So it's kind of in the middle of this person's hand. Can you see it? I don't know if we have enough pixels for you to see it. It's one of those pixels. It's really small. And... Um, and the surprising thing about mustard seed is when you plant it, not only can it grow about 15 feet tall, but it's really more of like a, like a lengthy bush, right? And this, this bush or this plant, um, when it seeds the ground, it seeds everywhere around it. And the mustard seed plants will grow side by side, really tight, tight together. And because of that, it will push out all the other plants in the garden, it has this way of invading acres and acres of land. And even like um, the U.S. Agricultural um, Governing Board has put restrictions on the mustard seed because if it's sown in the wrong places, it can take over uh, other habitats for other plants and animals. So it's this really powerful plant that starts really small but can take over massive amounts of land because of the way it's tight tightly uh, growing together and, and pushes forward. Next, next slide. And then he gives another parable with a similar message. He to- told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour, more or less, m- until it worked through all the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter uh, things hidden since the creation of the world. Next slide. So I have a definition for yeast and the correct spelling of it. But basically, it's a fungi of single oval cells, and it converts uh, sugar into um, other things. See, converting sugar into alcohol or carbon dioxide. So we have a lot. We, a lot of people are thinking yeast, um, but it has this multiplicative effect. When you put it in dough, it's almost like you could put as little as you want because it will start exponentially multiplying. And at a certain point, even though it's such a little amount of yeast, the whole dough is taken over. Right? You cannot take a piece of dough out without yeast being completely. Um, integrated into the dough. So what Jesus is saying about his kingdom through the parable 
of the yeast and the mustard seed is that it's going to start very small and invisible. It's going to feel very insignificant. But as the kingdom of God grows, it will, it will infiltrate every area of life, every country, and it will become more and more visible until the fulfillment of his kingdom. When you look at the next slide, we're going to spend most of our time here. We have this phrase um, in seminary, theologians will often say, the kingdom is here, but not yet. So the kingdom of God is present. When Jesus came, he announced God's kingdom to, to be present. He inaugurated it. But then it's not yet in the sense that it's not fully fulfilled or visible. It's not the kingdom in its fullness. And so I made a chart, the small and invisible kingdom. And this is speaking about Jesus kind of at his time or maybe the disciples' generation. Then we have the growing kingdom, maybe um, our present day, what the kingdom of God looks like now and how greatly it's expanded. And then we think about the visible kingdom or the fulfillment of God's kingdom in its totality, a lot from the book of Revelations and speaking about how the kingdom of God will end um, in its grandeur. And so we think about the small and invisible uh, aspects of God's kingdom. And again, these four categories of citizenship, borders, uh, the ruler, and the laws, right? Kind of these um, essential foundational blocks of a kingdom, society, commune, whatnot. And so when you think about it being small and invisible, we think about its citizens of Jesus' kingdom. At first, when, after he left earth, maybe he had 12 really devout followers, a few women as well, and then a few hundred at Pentecost, a few thousand. But that's, that's very insignificant compared to other religions at the time. Um, the Roman Empire that worshipped the emperor, it was, it's almost nothing, right? A few hundred is like us in this room saying, hey, let's start a movement or a kingdom that will take over the earth. Everyone would be like, you're stupid. We are like 170, 80 people. Um, when we think about the borders of this small and invisible kingdom, I would say it had no borders, right? There was no land that Christendom or Jesus had said, hey, we're going to draw out the circle and, and this will be our space. We have complete control over the space. We had no borders. Thirdly, we had a ruler named Jesus, but he seemed, again, small and invisible. Sure, later on in his ministry, he built notoriety. He had some crowds follow him. But think about his origin. He grew up, um, he was born in a manger, not a very important place. Like the cow was born and then next to him was Jesus, right? It's like really kind of um, extremely dull. And then he was actually an illegal immigrant fleeing to, to Egypt. He was a refugee. And then he came back after that persecution from King Herod. And then he grew up in, um, in Nazareth. And, and there's actual verses in the Bible. People are like, can anything good come out of Bakersfield, you know, or Victorville? Like, we have a president from Victorville now? Like, how, how did that happen, right? And that's the same thing. They're like, okay, he's supposed to be king, and he and he's grew up in, in Bakers, Bakersfield. Like, why, what? There's nothing good that can come out of there. Sorry if you're from there. I, I really, I do apologize. Um, it's just what I thought of. And then, uh, and then, so Jesus comes out from this really humble beginning. He, he's a carpenter. He's not, like, going through the religious ranks of becoming a Pharisee. You know, he's just, like, 
his parents are probably pretty poor. His dad dies at a young age. His mom, people think of her as a whore, right? They say, oh, this is, this is Mary's son. They didn't attribute Jesus to the father as, as they normally would in Jewish culture because they didn't think Jesus was a legitimate child of Joseph. So again, kind of the lowest of the lows, the most marginalized categories of people, Jesus fell under most of them. And then we think about the laws that Jesus enacted. Uh, Sermon on the Mount, this really simplistic, I would say extremely profound, but very short sermon on kingdom values. And he had a, uh, maybe a few dozen listeners next to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, very in, in, insignificant. But then we think about the kingdom of God and, and this pro- prophetic parable that Jesus spoke about and its growth. That it's going to take over fields. That it's going to um, permeate and multiply through 60 pounds of dough. And now, in terms of citizens, we have just right now about 2.5 billion Christians. About a third of the world is Christians. Isn't that breathtaking to think about 12, 100, a few thousand men and women moving across 2,000 years, and now a third of the world are believers. We think about how we still have no borders as a Christian kingdom, as the kingdom of God, and yet because of its borderlessness, uh, 531 languages have, have the complete Bible. 2,883 languages have parts of the Bible. There's believers in thousands of languages around the world gathering in huts and forests and city buildings, worshiping and and singing about Jesus in thousands of languages. Last week, we got to hear two of our Brazilian families worship the Lord in Portuguese. And some of us were brought to tears because we again remember the vastness of God's kingdom and how it permeates through, there's no border or mountain or, or citizenship that ex- is excluded in God's kingdom, that God's gospel cannot permeate and push through. And then we think about Jesus in the manger as this uh, lowly citizen um, of the Roman Empire now being worshipped as king by 2.5 billion Christians by in 2,000, almost 3,000 languages that Jesus has or should have our allegiance first, right? I'm not American first. I'm Christian first. And if there's ever a chasm, I follow Jesus over our president. I follow Jesus over our laws. And there's uh, so many times where we've seen people uh, disobey civil laws in order to obey the law of Jesus. And we have, he's, he's the king of, 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 and his citizens are scattered across every language and continent and country. And then we think about his laws being lived out in different communities and in a thousand different ways in different workplaces. We have buildings that have been inscribed by the laws of Jesus in government and in medicine and in the legal field and, um, and on church walls, in educational buildings, that the, the law and the principles of Christ have permeated every sector of society to forgive to love your enemy, to love your neighbors as yourself, to be faithful to your husband, 
to your wife, to not commit murder or even hate the person next to you. And, and really, this community of, of faith here and all over the world, as we gather together, we're learning how to live out those laws. And we are called to live out those laws. We are called to learn how to look someone in the eye and say, you hurt me or I forgive you. We are called to say, man, this person is competition. And because of that, we're going to bring them closer because we're called to love even our enemies, right? We're called to grow um, families that are faithful to Jesus, that are faithful to each other. He calls us into all of these things. And as a community, we don't do it perfectly, but we strive for these higher ethics. We strive to have a community where Jesus is the ruler and we desire his laws. And then lastly, we think about the fulfillment of God's kingdom. And, and it's, it's amazing. And it will come. Jesus says, I'm going to come back and I'm not going to be a lamb anymore. I'm going to be a lion. I'm going to rule the earth. I'm not going to come extending an olive branch. I will come with a sword, and I'm just going to take over. And for those of us who follow him, there's this great um, longing for him to reign and rule because he is just and good and merciful. Because ISIS won't be able to um, rape women anymore. Because, one of, because I heard this terrible story of someone rear-ending a car and coming out with his wife and his child in the backseat and another person coming out with um, brass knuckles to beat him down. And he's, an, and he's a nurse. And those things just won't happen. Because my wife, she's an occupational therapist, and her coworker has to read through one of the most grotesque child abuse cases as an occupational therapist. And that just won't happen anymore because Jesus will reign. And... So when we think about the visible kingdom, he gives these amazing pictures of citizens from every tongue, tribe, and nation bowing and worshiping Jesus. He gives this vision where, where from having no borders, the whole earth will be his, and everyone will know it, and that this, this city will be dropped down in Jerusalem where he will be with us, and we will be with him face to face where Jesus will be on the throne and every tongue, every knee will bow before him, where his laws will be perfected because his laws are, are interesting, right? It's not just uh, laws that all different societies have put together in order to keep peace. When we think about civil law, we can't legislate doing good. We can legislate not doing harm, but we can't legislate kindness and forgiveness and love and not hating the other person. But then on the Sermon on the, on, um, the Mount, Jesus gives us not only, he not only asks us to restrain from hurting each other, he asks us to do good. And then he gives us the power to do it. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He allows us to open his scripture that transforms our heart. And he forgives us and shows us grace all the way through. And he becomes the model of that in his life. And yet we struggle. We feel torn. And then one day we'll see him face to face. And when we fully see him, we will become like him. And those internal struggles in our heart will dissipate. And we'll, our, our, the, the ones who've always desired to be like Christ, that desire will fortify and we will be like him, 
and it will be even more unique and more diverse than we've ever been. I'm going to read some verses to you, and if you don't mind, I'll just have you close your eyes and just kind of picture these verses, the fullness of God's kingdom here on earth. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow on, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Try to find uh, colored images in your mind. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Next verse. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. One more time, just bring your mind back. I know it's hard to focus, but this is a great exercise. Put, put, put uh, pictures to all these words. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Next verse. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down of he- out of heaven from God, prepared for a bride beautifully dressed, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from those uh, from the throne saying, Be, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more mourning or death or crying or pain. For the old order of things have passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Read that one more time, our last passage. Again, just try to visualize everything. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, 
and there were no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared for a bride, beautifully, beautifully dressed for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with man, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more mourning or death or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That's where our church name comes from. From this vision of Jesus on the throne saying, I am making everything new. Renew church. And that's why we have a crown. Because we desire Jesus to be king and his kingdom to expand. Especially this year, I hope that all of you will be a part of our small group. Because a small group, not only are we learning tools um, to read the word of God, not only are we learning to be family, and we are learning, we are also desiring to build out his kingdom in the city. And so over this next year, we're stopping once a month to look at what it, what it means for God to say, my kingdom come. What it looks like to articulate the gospel and invite other people in. What it looks like to stake out different parts of the city and saying, as a small group, we want to be a mission team here and, and allow God's kingdom to touch the homeless or people who have special needs or someone who, a, a school that is underfunded. Because in God's kingdom, you know, everyone has friends and no one lives in poverty and people get to pursue their dreams. And so our church is, to, is called, I think every church is called, to build out God's kingdom here and to wait in great expectancy of his kingdom to come. God, today we come to you and we pray that being Christian would be so much more than saying a prayer, doing devotionals, and gathering in on Sundays. More than just a community of, of friends, that we would desire your kingdom to come. That's what you are all about on this earth, proclaiming yourself as king, inviting the marginalized into your kingdom, and allowing us to live in a new, um, with new values, with new vision for this earth. It's amazing to look back at 2,000 years and see so many brothers and sisters, so many men and women of faith go before us and be that uh, good soil that bared much fruit be the wheat that stood out among weeds, be the yeast and the mustard seed that invaded um, borders and kingdoms and, and occupations. And we just kind of join in with this flood of, of kingdom people um, desiring your kingdom to expand in Iraq, in r the refugee camps, desiring your kingdom to be tangible for kids who uh, have special needs or who, ha who are foster um, who are in the foster system. We desire for your kingdom to be in our, in our places of work and family and recreation. 
Lord, I pray that we would continue to live out our vision as a church, that every member would be a missionary, expanding your kingdom where we, where we are. And every small group would be a mission team, discovering how to be a mission team to the city we reside in. Thank you so much that our church has gone four years, but we have so much, you know, you give us so much to do. Um, and we embrace that, and we're excited for the adventures ahead. Um, Lord, would we celebrate your name today in worship? And will we humble ourselves before it? And will we be people who long for heaven, not a Simpsons version where we just fulfill our own gluttony and pleasures, but a vision of heaven where you reign and rule, and this, this vision of, of a city and a country where people can live vulnerably and honestly, where we can see you face to face, where we can finally um, get our hands around a, a, a country that is just and good and prosperous um, because you are there and you rule. I pray for a great anticipation for that. We love you. We're thankful for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I would invite you all to stand and take communion with me. Uh, we remember that Jesus invites us into his kingdom, um, not just kind of handing out flyers, but by bleeding on the cross and giving up his body for us so that we can become holy, so that because of his forgiveness, we can be righteous and be in a place where God resides. That's the only way we could be at the face of God because of Jesus' forgiveness over our lives. That's the only way we can go from enemies to sons and daughters because he died for us and he forgave us and he brings us in through Christ, through his blood, through his body that was shed. So as we take communion today, we remember that all of that's from him. Let's stand and take communion together.